Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. Chances are people in your network are thinking about going to church for Easter somewhere. They might as well come with you. Statistically speaking, most people, over 50% would come if they got invited. So we have invite cards. We've got stacks of them, and uh, I literally have nothing to do with them after today. So uh, take one, take 10, take 50. I don't care how many you take, um, but uh, prayerfully consider somebody who is close to you, whether that be somebody at work, somebody on your block, uh, who might just need an invitation to come to Easter this year. You'll never know what that tiny invitation could do for them. Well, it is Palm Sunday, and we're going to get to that here in just a moment, but I want to take a step backwards. Last week, we covered kind of two weeks in a row as we started our new series, King. We started out talking about this idea that in the beginning that God was king. He was the creator of the universe, the sustainer of everything, and the early writers of the Bible record him in this manner. They ascribe words to him that they would ascribe to a ruling king, to somebody who had authority and power. And so this is the model in which God is given to us as king over everything. It's true in Genesis as God creates, and then he calls Abram to follow him, and he follows through his line to Joseph and to Egypt, and no where do we see this more clearly than in the Exodus as God rescues and delivers his people into the promised land that he provides a space for them. He carves out a place for their safety and their security. After they arrive, God appoints judges, people to rule for him. Prophets, priests, judges are kind of interchangeable at this time. And and really though, they're just exercising God's will, right? God is still the king. He's still the ultimate authority and these are people whose power are derived for their ability to speak on behalf of God. They give instructions, they lead the people so that they keep in line with their one true king who is God. And then we got to our story last week in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where we looked at the first king. Israel demands a king. They say, no longer are we trusting in this God who's just out there somewhere. We want somebody who's close, who's proximate, somebody that we can see with our eyes. We want a true seat of power, somebody who can lead us in to battle. Their literal rationale in 1 Samuel chapter 8 is, give us a king so we can be like everyone else. The language that Samuel uses to record God's response to this is in phrases like, they have forsaken me, they've rejected me as their king, and he sees himself being replaced as their king in the hearts of his people. Right? And who does get anointed in his place? Well, the reality is that we do, right? Mankind, people do. Literally, right? Kings take over the throne of Israel. That doesn't go so well. There's maybe one or two shining examples, but other than that, it's a pretty much train wreck from then until now. But even more deceptive than this, what this creates in your heart and in my heart is that we become the king or the queen, the ruler, the authority of our own lives. We sit on the throne of our lives. God is at best an advisor if he's involved at all, and so the world around us becomes shaped in our image. We become the kings and queens, the rulers in our own world. 
And that's pretty much the story of humanity from those first days until now. But the good news is that there's hope, which you would expect around Easter time in a church, right? Hopefully this story picks up and gets us to where we need to get to. And that's coming up next week as we talk about Jesus as the reigning king. I'm so incredibly excited for next week. As the video said, I hope that you'll consider inviting someone to join you. We'll have two services, 9 and 11, with an Easter egg hunt right in the middle an opportunity for your friends to come and enjoy something, for us to enjoy something as the family of God. And uh, this week, we have a ton of candy collected. We literally have thousands of eggs, and um, we need some like Keebler Elf-style stuff going on. So if you want to take a bag of candy and a bag of eggs, take them home this week, stuff them. Maybe you just want to take eggs and you haven't bought your candy yet. That's totally fine. Uh, bring them back before Sunday, though. Think Good Friday. Uh, Segway into Good Friday. We're going to have a worship experience here. It's just going to be kind of an open house, reflective, med meditative worship experience from 6 until 9 p.m. Uh, going on Friday. So take some eggs, take some candy, or buy some candy. Bring them back on Good Friday, uh, and then invite someone on Easter 9 and 11. It's going to be a great Sunday as we wrap up this idea of Jesus as King. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. We still have today. We still have Palm Sunday. We still have this triumphal entry. And uh, that's important because this is the beginning of Holy Week. This starts kind of this grand procession, this history of tradition in which this week is steeped. And today I'd simply like to make this point for all of us, that Jesus' coming is about more than our eternal destination. That Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, his miracles, his healings, all the things that he did that we know about and even the things that we don't know about is about so much more than simply you and I. Now, don't get me wrong, right? Jesus is coming. His life and his death absolutely puts us back in right standing with God. It offers us the forgiveness for our sins and our shortcomings, and it purchased us eternity with God. That is good news. That is the heartbeat of the gospel, and in no way do I want to diminish that or take that down in any capacity. I just want to raise up perhaps the other side of the equation, something that maybe we don't reflect on often enough or maybe is just marginalized in the way that our culture is operated today, that the salvation of our souls, our eternity with God, is almost a byproduct of the work that Christ came to do through his death and resurrection. Again, I don't want to minimize that work. I just think there's so much more going on that the scripture keys us into that we miss out in this story because we're so focused about ourselves and our eternal destination and our souls being right with God. And rightfully so. I mean, in an age where we are our own kings and queens, that perhaps just maybe we've made the gospel and the good news fundamentally about us and not about God. That we've transformed this old, old story, this ancient story that's been written from the beginning of time, and we've somehow relegated it to a personal experience while letting go and abdicating the grander story that's being told throughout all of creation. And if you'll go on that journey with me, not to minimize that at all, but to raise some of the other standards, I think that God's got some challenging information for us. Because in the beginning, God was king. 
And in the beginning, God created us in his image. We bear his stamp. He doesn't mirror our stances. Our best qualities reflect him and not the other way around. So in a time where all of our world, where everything that we see on the internet is literally bent inward to look at ourselves, right? In an age and time where something called a selfie stick actually exists. Confession time. How many of you own a selfie stick? I do. I have. Some people are lying in church this morning. A selfie stick is actually a thing, right, where we so focus the world around us that we have to take our picture doing things and we can't be bothered with asking somebody else to help us. In a world where everything is turned inward on ourselves, what if the gospel is more than simply your happily ever after with God? What if the good news, what if Jesus' life and death and resurrection were about something more than simply us? Because while Easter and Jesus' death were certainly for us and for our good and for our gain, we get eternity and right standing with God. Jesus' death accomplished so much more, and I'd like to explore some of those themes today, starting with this phrase in Colossians. Colossians is one of the earliest letters written in the New Testament. It probably predates the Gospels. It predates all of this thing. It was the first pastoral letter where Paul is writing to a group of churches. It contains rich theology because they're right on the forefront of their understanding about who Jesus is. The death and resurrection are literally in the rearview mirror as Paul is writing some of these phrases and some of these opportunities. Here's how he tells the grander story of the gospel. This is Colossians 1. We'll start in verse 15. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the visible representation. Remember how Israel wanted a king, that visible representation? Paul says, yeah, it's Jesus. The firstborn over all creation, firstborn son, was the one to inherit the kingdom, if you recall. Verse 16, for in him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Listen to the kingly language woven in throughout that. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that all things he may have preeminence, firstness, headship. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself, God, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through the blood of his cross. See, Paul's understanding is so much deeper and richer. He goes on to describe how that affects us, that because of Jesus' sacrifice, that we, our souls, ourselves, have also been reconciled to God. But Paul's words here, the first words penned about this resurrected Savior, this Jesus who came, is that this is about everything in all of creation. This is about every molecule, every aspect, every single thing Jesus Jesus comes to knit together, to hold together, to bring back into connection with God. Jesus' coming is reconciling all things to God. 
This is the fundamental purpose with which he serves. The fundamental reason that he comes is the restoration and reconciliation, not just of mankind, not just of you and I upwards to God, our Savior, but the restoration and reconciliation of all creation, everything, every single thing brought under the lordship of Christ. Now, that term reconciled is, is a bit difficult, but we're going to build on that throughout, uh, throughout our talk today. I love the original Merriam-Webster 1828 dictionary, uh, which isn't very helpful here. It defines, uh, it defines reconciled as to conciliate anew, which isn't helpful. When's the last time you used the word conciliate in your language? like ever, right? But you can think of conciliatory, right? There's a, there's a relationship involved. What does it mean to be reconciled? Well, it means that things are kind of put back into right standing. If we're having an argument and we're reconciled, it means that our relationship is restored, repaired. Things are put back in order. Maybe a bit more practical one, right? It's tax season. How many of you have to reconcile your receipts, right? You have to make account for and things have to balance. The word reconcile can also mean to settle or adjust, and not just as us individually remember, but Christ's death comes to reconcile, to make new, to put back in proper order, not just our relationship to God, but all of creation back into right relationship with its creator. All things reconciled to God. Reconciled means to make things right. Romans chapter 8, Paul says it a little bit differently. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. We'll start at verse 19. It says, For the creation, right, the, the world, the universe, everything within it, waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. In other words, they weren't here, and then as Jesus comes, he unveils the children of God. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, it didn't decide to separate from God, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In other words, when we fell, creation fell with us. In hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, it's, cap it's captivated by death, and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. See, not only have we been separated from God, not only is there a chasm that separates us from our eternal Father, creation is also subjected to frustration, as it says in that passage in Romans. It says it's like it's been pregnant, waiting for the birth of something new, waiting for some new life to burst forth. And what it was waiting for was Jesus to come and to raise up the sons of God. In other words, as we're reconciled to God, so creation is reconciled to God, and as we become reconciled, we then become part of the ministry of reconciliation. We'll get to that here in just a little bit. We're part of making things right. 
And the whole created order, animals and plants, water and air, universes and galaxies, atoms and molecules, they feel this separation. They feel this things aren't right and they're longing to be reunited with God. Jesus is coming is about more than just our eternal destination. That's a huge part of it, but it's also about reconciling, making all things right before God. Why is this so important? Because this act, Jesus' death and resurrection, this week that we're entering into, is the crescendo of the entire Bible. The entire story of humanity crescendos at this moment that since the beginning of time, there's been a separation from God, that he was out there somewhere and that we were here. But in Jesus, God draws near. His death tears the veil so that there's no longer anything separating us from God, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when Jesus comes, he comes to make things right between us and God, absolutely, but he comes to restore his entire kingdom into proper relationship with himself. He comes to take back the throne, to sit again as ruler over heaven, over creation, over mankind, over all of eternity. That's why today matters, right? Today is Palm Sunday. It's the recorded opportunity of the triumphal entry. And we're going to go to that story now. We're going to look at the Luke account on, page, on uh, Luke 19. It's on page 495 in the Worship Center Bibles. If you'd like to borrow one of those, you're welcome to. But this story from 2,000 years ago, in the context of the scripture that we first, that we just reviewed, has so much more history, has so many more dynamics to put into place. Because it's not just about a rabbi 2,000 years ago riding into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. That story happens every year. It will continue to happen every single year. Jesus' coming to Jerusalem is a moment that all of creation is waiting for with bated breath. Angels are watching, going, I wonder how this is all going to play out. Creation is begging for reconciliation. Mankind is longing to be reunited with God as they were intended. And that brings us to today. You know the story, right? Jesus, depending on the account, goes to find a young donkey, a colt of a donkey. Sometimes they get asked, what are you stealing my donkey for? And they just say, Jedi mind trick. They're like, the Lord needs it. And uh, they're like, okay, cool. That makes sense, right? So they get this donkey and Jesus comes riding in. And in this Luke account, we're going to pick up uh, at verse 37. It says, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, that is into Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the whole crowd of disciples, don't think 12, think about the multitude that were following him at various times, began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The triumphal entry is one of the few events that's recorded in all four Gospels. There are four tellings of the life of Jesus, and each author kind of tells their different perspective, what they see and what they experience. This week, the triumphal entry 
and following all tell very, very similar stories and similar accounts, but Luke's language is very, very pointed here. It's very, very intentional. Remember, Luke is writing to a Greek audience. They wouldn't have been familiar or as familiar with the Jewish tradition, so they wouldn't see the messianic phrases as his right for rule as king. Greg mentioned that as we worship, that in all the other gospels, they record the word as Hosanna, right, which is a transliteration of Jesus' own name. It means, Lord, save us or save us now. It's a messianic word. It's used to ascribe to God to say, Lord, save us, or to a king, save us. We're in trouble. We're in dire need. But Luke knows that if he just writes Hosanna to his friends in Rome, they're not going to understand it. So he translates it for them. He gives them the behind the scenes, the thousand years worth of history, and he says, let me just explain this to you, that what the crowd shouted was, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This Hosanna, this greeting in the streets, this waving of palm branches and cloaks spread out is a kingly procession. It is not normal. It is not typical. The words ascribed to Jesus are ascribing to him messianic kingdom restoration type of language. And so Luke tells his friends, tells the people who will be reading this, that this is a kingly greeting, that you shouldn't miss out on that just because you don't know the etymology of the word. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, who comes in the name of God. Now, every other time when Jesus is given that title king, every other time when they try to make him king, Jesus kind of skirts the issue, right? He goes away into a quiet place. He walks through the crowd untouched. He says, no, that king word doesn't fit in this moment, at least not for what they were trying to do. This instance, though, as Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, he doesn't do that. He does actually quite the opposite. He doubles down. As a matter of fact, Luke records that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, try to call him on it. Look at verse 39. Verse 39 says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, tell them to stop it. Tell them to stop giving you the kingly adoration. I glanced over that second line there where it says peace in heaven. Peace in heaven doesn't make a ton of sense. You would think, go back to Christmas with me, right? Peace on earth right? That makes more sense that that's what Jesus came to do. Again, though, Luke is trying to tell the story of Jesus's divinity, that he's coming to do more than an earthly king because Caesar could bring you peace on earth. That was his claim, the Pax Romana, that Rome brings peace through war. Jesus doesn't come to bring peace on earth. He comes to bring peace, rightness, reconciliation in heaven. The Pharisees hear this and they say, tell your disciples to stop it because we know that Rome's going to hear about this. We know that Caesar's going to hear about this, that the rulers are going to hear about this. So tell your disciples to knock it off with the kingly language. Notice the horizontal aspect of their rebuttal. They say, hey, we don't want the word king used because we're afraid that the people in authority will hear you and then we'll all get in trouble for it. 
Remember, uh, overthrowing the government, new kings were something that were a dime a dozen in the ancient world. Every single year, probably every single Passover, there were rebellions of people who were seeking to grasp power, seeking to overthrow the Roman occupation. They were seeking to come in and to sit on the throne themselves and to have power to organize Israel, to organize the people of God. There are countless revolutions, countless uh, fights that happen among this idea of a king walking into Jerusalem at Passover. After all, it was prophesied, it was expected. People were looking for this coming king who would liberate them from the bondage of the Roman Empire. So the Pharisees say, hey, knock it off, or the same thing that happened last time. They're going to come in here, they're going to tear everything up, and it's going to be bad. Tell your disciples to stop. Jesus, though, is about something different this time around. He's not trying to put himself as a man back on the throne. He's trying to put God back on the throne to restore the right order to creation, to put it back as God intends with God as king. And so he quips to that end. This is the whole reason why I wanted to talk about this today, because I know you've heard this line before. I I know that you've probably connected it at times, but I'm hoping that it catches you a little bit different today in light of the scriptures that we looked at before. Verse 40, Pharisees say, tell your disciples to shush. Jesus says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, now here's why this is, this is interesting, because what Jesus is saying is that all of creation is behind him in this moment. And again, I'm sure you've had that thought before of knowing that nature, that creation is waiting for Christ to come back, but I think we miss the significance of what this moment means, where Jesus comes forward and where he says, no, the, te- the term king fits. It fits for eternity as God begins to rule again, because all of creation, the entire story has been building up to this moment, to this holy week, to the time when Jesus enters in Jerusalem today and then when he's crucified in less than a week from now and where he's raised again. Everything was hinged on this story. And so when Jesus says, no, if they're quiet, you don't understand creation is begging to be reconciled. It's in the pains of childbirth waiting to burst forth for something new to come out. If they keep silent, then the rocks and stones will cry out because all of creation is waiting for this moment, for Jesus to come and to reconcile not just you and me, but to reconcile all things unto God. Jesus comes to restore creation to its proper order. Jesus' life and death and resurrection is about not just making you and I right with God, it's about making everything right with God again. In every situation, in every capacity, it's about restoring creation, about God being king and not us. It's about all things being reconciled through the blood of Jesus. And yes, the good news of that is that you and I will be put back in connection with God again, but it's so much deeper and broader and richer than just that story. If we fast forward to the end of the story, Revelations 21 verse 3, here's what that reconciling looks like. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their 
God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. So let's see if we can make this a little bit personal for us as we end today. The, the reality, again, I don't want to diminish that Jesus came to reconcile us to himself. Hugely important, not trying to diminish that at all. But the bigger, broader story is that Jesus' life and death and resurrection puts all things back under the control of God. It puts everything back under his lordship. And what we're invited to participate into is not simply a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not simply a receiving of a salvation so that we know where we're going to spend eternity and then we just go on keeping things on. The ministry that God gives us is that we're reconciled to God through Christ and then that's given back to us to be reconcilers, to be people who make things right in the world. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 says it the best way. All of this, all the goodness that Paul is talking about, all the things that we received is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. We're reconnected with God and gave us the ministry, the, the work, the opportunity of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us not to Paul, not to the disciples, to all followers of Jesus, the message of reconciliation, making things right again. We, you, me, everyone, are therefore Christ's ambassadors, Christ's representation, as though God were making his appeal through us. As if God were making his case, as if God were actually reconciling, not just through Jesus' death and resurrection, but through the individual work that we each contribute to. Therefore, Paul says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The beautiful thing about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, yes, is our salvation. Yes, is our right standing with God. It's hugely important. We're going to spend all next week reflecting on that truth. But the backdrop to this whole story, the, the greater cosmic picture, is that the reason that you and I are able to be reconciled with God is because Jesus came to put all things back in order. And while you and I may be instant gratification and we just kind of will be going, well, let's just get it done then. Let's snap the infinity gauntlet. Let's put everything back the way that it used to be and we'll just go on with the story. God says, no, 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 no. It's much deeper than that. This isn't a finished work. It's a completed work that is being finished and refined through us. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation because chances are you didn't come to faith in Jesus on your own. You were invited, you were brought in, you were reconciled, you were put back together with God. And so in Jesus, as everything is restored, we are then restored to God, but that doesn't stop at just our journey. It begins there as we take on, as we participate in the ministry of reconciliation, of making all things new. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We're going to sing one more song. And, and my simple challenge or thought process for you is to find yourself in this grand narrative. 
As you reflect on the events of Holy Week, maybe you're going to join us for Good Friday. Maybe you just have your own traditions or your own way to walk through this week. But the simple point is this, that, that all of creation is bending to this story, that everything hinges on the events that we celebrate this week. And I want to challenge you to not only find yourself in that story, not only take yourself on that journey of reconciliation with God, but to recognize the grander pieces that are in place in the world around you, that creation is put back in order, that we are put back in order, and that we have the opportunity to invite others to be in right standing with God. Would you bow your heads with me? I don't know if anything jumped out to you today. I don't know if there's anything that happened to stick for you as we talk, but I hope, I hope that it was a drawing of God to you to say this work of Jesus is so much bigger than we give it credit for. And as you sit on that thought, as you take it with you, as you reflect this week, I, I hope and I pray that it becomes something that drives you deeper and deeper into a relationship with him to understand your place in the grand story is not insignificant, but is extremely significant in the light of all the pieces that come together in order for God's work to be done in your life. And so, Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask that you would do your reconciling work. God, that you would start first and foremost with us because that's all that we can control. It's all that we have, God. And if there are areas and issues where we're separated from you, where we need to be reconciled to settle accounts, to be brought back into proper relationship with you, that, God, you would make that happen. And then if there are places where we need to be reconciled with friends and family, with other relationships, that you would empower us by your spirit to do that, that all of creation would be better because we follow you and you are the king. Heavenly Father, as we go throughout this week, may we do so with heads held high, proud of the heritage and the name that we bear, that to be a Christian is to be a reconciler, that we would make things new and make things right in your name. Heavenly Father, would you equip us for that ministry of reconciliation, even though we're the first to proclaim, God, I don't have it, I'm not there yet. Jesus says, that's okay. I'll make things right through you. Heavenly Father, seal that in our hearts. Make it true for us today. We love you and we praise you. We thank you that all things were made right some 2,000 years ago and that we are perpetuators of that work. All God's kids agreed together and said, Amen.